You're listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. Right, well, if you're anything like mine, uh, it um, does well by singing psalms like 10,000 Reasons because it's in order to uh, sing to your own, basically to tell your own heart what to do, right? A good primer in remembering that, uh, which is why we pray the prayers of incline our heart to your word and not to selfish gain. It's the reason we start in the morning by praying, because if we get up sort of to our own devices, just waking up while the flesh is preaching to, you know, to your whole heart unchecked and unchallenged, I mean, that's dangerous. I don't know about you, it's dangerous for me. Dangerous for my whole household if that happens. Um, so let me uh, encourage you to make music in your heart with thanksgiving. That, that's the reason that the command uh, is, is uh, given in Scripture for us to sing. Uh, it's a good thing. It, it's, it's a good thing for you to do. So uh, you coming uh, here today, uh, of course, shows your commitment to song, sermon, and sacrament. And I hope that all three of those are um, life and breath to you uh, today and that it's a grace um, and that it's not only a help to you um, and a service to you, but also that you, you understand that you're a part of service rendered to God today and service rendered to others. Let me encourage you to serve one another in your conversations that you have today uh, before you leave. All right, so uh, here we are. Um, and again, uh, thanks to Andrew for um, preaching and for the Davises for hosting. Uh, they came this morning to return the cheers to us. Um, all three of them have chest colds, including the baby, and they're not here. And so, um, and the uh, Clark house is wrecked with uh, a bit of, uh, I think it's a mixed bag between sickness and fatigue. And so, um, yeah, we'll be praying for, praying for them. All right, First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Um, lots here. Um, and at the same time, Things that you've already heard, uh, not only in this book, uh, but certainly before, uh, as we uh, look to this. Uh, I think if we had to wrap up Andrew's <clears throat> message in part, what we might say uh, about last week's sermon is that we are to live radically different lives. Um, meaning, we are to, in the middle of suffering, be graciously hospitable without grumbling, in the middle of living in grave hostility. Social, socially, socioeconomically, physically, um, that all the above, uh, whatever it may be that we're going through, that we be people of joy and gladness and hospitality. That's different, isn't it? I mean, that's a total, totally different way of living life. It's the real definition of the word holy, as it is separate, other than distinct, different to make a difference, etc. Um, so let's let's jump right into it here uh, today. Verse 12, <laughs> if you're taking notes, um, you could uh, put here uh, in your notes, uh, surprised and strange, surprise and strange. And I think that um, that is precisely what I think that trials are when they come in my life. I, I, I find uh, that I struggle with God the most when, it, you know, exactly what he said would happen happens in my life and that is that I'm a part of a fallen world that has a lot of fallenness in it uh, and or if I am experiencing trials in my life uh, specifically that are related to my life's message and my ministry um, 
And so today, we're, we hope to re reset your expectations today. Um, uh, all through these verses, really, but particularly in verse 12 as well. Um, so the normal way of life, trial. The normal way of life, okay? Uh, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Um, it's probably a response to the burning of Rome. Um, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you uh, to test you uh, as though something strange were happening to you. And, and so let me just ask you a question about your general expectation, which we already mentioned. Um, what is it that you think about when you wake up in the morning? Like When you first wake up, what's your expectation of the day? Within the first 30 minutes, what's running around in your head um, in, in terms of what that day's going to look like or what you want it to look like or what you, in your in my infinite wisdom, think that it should look like, right? <laughs> we immediately already have this agenda about how it's going to go and how we hope we feel and how, how that person responds to us at work, right? And immediately, uh, the whole thing just sort of sets out rather than us beginning our day with a biblical expectation, right? That's saying, whoa... Um, you know, I, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm both sinner and saint at the same time, and I'm waking up to um, uh, the victory of God. I'm waking up to forgiveness of sins. I'm waking up to the promises of God. And in the midst of all of that wonderful news, there are people who desperately need Jesus Christ, who uh, are going to uh, act in a certain way, uh, and they're going to respond to me if I am to live biblically today uh, in a way that's going to uh, put, put me through something. Uh, to say uncomfortable would be obvious, right? <clears throat> and so Peter comes out and says, hey, don't be surprised uh, as if this is something strange. This is your MO. This is your modus operandi. This is your norm. This is how life looks. So life looks um, as if it were suffering. Now, of course, I'm preaching this to a living room full of people who know nothing about physical persecution. Nothing. None of us know anything, uh, as far as I know of, of physical persecution. 160,000 people this year will lose their lives, actually, worldwide. Not, they won't lose their lives and they're Christian and happen to be Christian. They will lose their lives specifically because they hold the name Christian, which we will look at um, a little bit later, uh, because as Paul says in verse 16, he says, when you suffer as a Christian, he says, right, so it's like for that name, um, but, but, but you know, you and I know, know nothing, else, nothing of it, for the most part. so how is it that we're to respond? How do, how do we get identify? We always feel like we're these third-rate Christians in comparison to the audiences of all these biblical letters, right, but you need not feel that way. Um, you need not feel that way. Um, you, 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 you may just need to recognize that for you to hold a biblical worldview and to speak truth with a biblical and a kingdom ethic, you will be marginalized. And you may need to, you know, maybe just recognize that there's not enough hope in you shining through for anybody to disagree with you one way or the other, right? Woe to you of whom all men think well, Jesus said. I find my life to be like that a lot of times. That there's not enough that there's not enough Bible on my lips to be remotely controversial, in in what is a very controversial society, right? If I if I start telling them that I'm the head of a government of my own home, and that that happens to come up, 
in, in conversation? Wowzers. How's that going to go over with anybody with a pulse, right? Uh, it's not going to go over well. Uh, or, or the fact that I believe of all humanity stands in judgment before God, all these other things. So, yeah, um, a good expectation of the day is good. Uh, and I think, if anything, I am certainly surprised by the wrong things in my life, uh, normally, and just surprised when things make me uncomfortable when Jesus says, well, that there's certainly uncomfort coming in the world. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, um, uh, tell us a lot uh, about verse 12 as it sort of mimics it. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Uh, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith uh, more precious than gold uh, that perishes, uh, though it is tested through fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is just saying, hey, you're, you're going to be persecuted. You need to be joyful in the middle of that, and you also need to have the hope of looking at the end. Uh, and this is actually how Peter started his letter. Ironically, it's also how James, brother and roommate for 30 years of Jesus, also starts his letter. There's a running theme here with people who are close to Jesus. And it's that joy and gladness are important in the middle of trial produces good things in you, right? Um, and uh, so we certainly should, should take note. Speaking of this, uh, Paul comes out so far as to say in his last letter to the church, um, before he before he dies, I believe shortly after pinning chapter four in chapter two, he said in verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Right? Share in good suffering as a soldier of Jesus Christ. So he puts this sort of militaristic uh, vernacular and vocabulary in it. No soldier, he goes on to say in verse four, gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Um, so yeah, uh, the normal way of life in the Christian life is trial. Um, and uh, certainly we should uh, live with eyes wide open. Let me encourage you to live with eyes wide open. Let me encourage you to ask the Lord to give you uh, the opportunity. In, in our leadership meetings all of the time, one of the primary running things that we pray for that is always the same. Things around it may change, but it's always the same. We beg the Lord for gospel opportunity, not only for ourselves, but for our people, that the Lord would give us in our workplaces, in our homes, in our spheres of influence, the opportunity to speak truth to people and the gospel that they so desperately need. And, and, and that we need, because we also have workplaces, right, that we're in the middle of, and we, we want to be able to do that. And we're happen, we happen to be right in the middle of a letter, which the primary verse is chapter 3, verse 15, which says just that. I mean, you, you go, right, and you, uh, you be ready to answer for the hope that is in you. When someone asks and looks at you and your separateness, in, right, in, in your difference, in, in the workplace, right? And they look at you and say, what's up with you? And you say, well, this is, a, this is everything. This is why, right? So you can provide the, the opportunity. Uh, let me encourage you before we move on to talk about verse 13 and joy. For you not to confuse uh, this with living uh, of sort of with the mentality of a, of a victim, right? And I mention this in my occasionally. 
Um, I think I mention this cinema occasionally for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mention it because as a pastor, we're called to be anthropologists. We're, we're called to study people and know people. And I think all of us have a tendency to uh, victimize ourselves, right? And, and that you know, victimizing ourselves and having that martyr victim mentality is something that all of us have to a degree and some having to a debilitating degree, right? I think that we're all probably instinctively leaning that direction because we want to sort of preserve ourselves, right? And so a lot of times we, we make ourselves a martyr at work when we're not, um, uh, in, in our marriage when we're, when we're not, and, and our friendships when we're not. Um, and so let me encourage you not to head that direction, right? Um, don't, 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 don't take the verse of verse 12 and wrap up your identity and suffering and then turn everything into a cause against yourself. That's just not happening, right? Um, and at the same time, you know, obviously you need to have a clear level head about what, what suffering does look like, that, that if you do speak it, then, then you will get it. But let me encourage you to rebuke the flesh in you that would say, you know, uh, yeah, everybody's out to get me. Um, it really is, unfortunately, though we do it so much as adults, it's very akin to the adolescent phenomenon that thinks that everyone is looking at them. You know that phenomenon, right? In, in teenagers, that they think that everyone's looking at them. And, and our brains, when we're teenagers, tell us that, and clearly that's not happening. But, but it tells us that. And the victim mentality is the first cousin of that, of that phenomenon, right? That um, it's all, it's, it's about me. No, it's not. It's nothing to do with us, right? It's, um, and we, we certainly should not live that way. Um, we should live with a biblical expectation of what the world around us looks like and uh, the, the kind of persecution that may come our way and why it's coming. Uh, okay, number uh, verse 13, uh, joy and suffering. Joy and suffering. But, but rejoice uh, in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when your uh, glory, when his glory, excuse me, is revealed. Uh, we've already mentioned James chapter 1, verse 2. I'll read it to you now. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces all these things, right? Uh, and then the first of which is steadfastness. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice, Philippians 4, 4, is so very important that you have great joy, that you can live a life of blessing others, right? Um, that you're, you're not going to live in the aforementioned self-pity uh, of a victim's mentality, right? Uh, but, but that you're going to live in the victory of God with a good biblical expectation about the promises of God and everything that he's done for you, about how truly blessed you are, that that gives you a joy that people actually have reason to ask about, right? Where they look at you and go, oh, gosh, wow, look at that. Uh, in him, look at that response. Uh, something else that's mentioned here is that it says that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And be glad when his glory is revealed. Um... This is talking about the end times. This is, this is basically talking about joy that doesn't just live in the Christian life day to day, but a joy and a hope that looks for the coming of Christ, right? Now, I naturally have a tendency, I don't know if you do, maybe you don't, probably not, praise God, uh, but I have a natural tendency 
to abhor all things in the times. If it's eschatological in nature, I just don't like it. Uh, primarily because the, uh, the spiritual climate that I was raised in was always talking about it. Every, every single text in the Bible had to do with the end times. And, and even, at a, at, even as a lost person, right, I'm looking at the Bible going, no, that's, that, that can't be the mean, all the meaning of that text, right? And a lot of this may have come from Schofield Study Bible or maybe, you know, too much uh, eschatology there. But I, I, what it did was, for me personally, it just swung me the opposite way, right, to where even now in my adulthood, I have to check myself and say, with gladness, the last verse of the Bible, hasten the day, come Lord Jesus, and be a person that looks forward to the end. Does that make sense? Um, and so uh, if you need a devotional primer like I do, of being a person that lives with the reality of joy in the coming of Christ, that you could be joyful and glad, that you can endure well because you want to see Jesus come back and make all things new, then you should probably devotionally read First and Second Thessalonians. That would be a great, great thing for you to do, for you to go in and read through that because uh, all five chapters of First Thessalonians and all three chapters of Second Thessalonians is just dripping with a love for the return of Jesus. Um, and uh, I do think um, that um, we can be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Uh, I, I, think, I think that that's possible if, if, if we're not looking to the end in sight. Uh, the definition of what it means to be secular is living for the here and now. Right here. Like, like it's, it, it's just, it's all about right now. Um, and certainly... That um, should not be the case. All right, spirit and glory. Let's let's take a look at verse fourteen. We'll also read with verse fourteen. The very end of verse thirteen is we're kind of clustering it together. Spirit and glory, um, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse fourteen. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, so we're talking about the revealing of Christ, the revealing uh, of all things. Of course, we're rooted in the Christian gospel here, which puts a high premium on resurrection and the resurrection of, of the body and of the dead and the next life, right? Uh, and, and truly, a secular society doesn't truly look at uh, the future much. It's, it's all about the here and now. Uh, but I, I, in these verses, we're going to really want to pay close attention to is when it says in the middle of the suffering, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the reason that you're blessed, the, the blessing that you have to enjoy is that you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. So this is a good time to stop and sort of take the exit of pneumatology and say, let's just talk for a second here. What is the spirit of glory and, and God that, that this verse is talking about? And this is it. The same Holy Spirit that descended like a dove at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, uh, and rested on him lives in you. The theology of the body that we have is rooted in the fact, uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18, 19, and 20, that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you're called to holiness with your eyes, feet, mouth, stomach, fingers and hands and arms because your body is the new temple. Jews don't have a temple anymore. It's gone. Um, 
understand what the world would look like when they get one again. It will be uh, holy hell in the Middle East uh, when, when that comes, right? So they don't have one. You and your body, you're a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. When you go into work tomorrow, uh, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And listen to this, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will someday, which currently lives in you, will someday be involved in your resurrection. The power of resurrection. The power of spiritual life, right? Um, that's sort of the idea. Um, so let me encourage you uh, to... Um, and and here, here, here is the admitted problem with reformed types such as us. Uh, we, we do not talk about the Holy Spirit enough, right? Uh, and I think that the reformed community is they're producing some, you know, some good talk about Holy Spirit. We do, I agree, we do tend to talk about, you know, the Holy Trinity is the Father, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Word of God, rather than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and so let me encourage you to the end of knowing who lives in you, right? And knowing that you're blessed. So I mean, if you want to know the meaning, what's what's the interpretation? What's the purpose of, of verse 14? It is to say that as you're as you're suffering with Christ, as you're as you're insulted, you're a blessed person. And the reason that you're blessed uh, is not necessarily because you're being insulted, but but it's it's that you have the blessing of God Almighty living inside of you, right? Um, which is uh, incredibly amazing. All right. Verse 15. Do not sin as the world. Do not meddle. This is not the first time that we've heard this. Um, we've heard back in the uh, um, the, the uh, household code of behavior <clears throat> when uh, Peter is talking to household servants and slaves. He says, when you are beat, make sure that you're beat for doing good rather than being beat for sinning. It's like, like, as a Christian, don't get in trouble because of rampant sin in your life. Um, and of course, we've heard that in other places as well, right? Uh, do not sin as the world, do not meddle, verse 15. But let none of you suffer, if you suffer, for sin, as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, number three, number four, as a meddler. Don't know of any murderers in here, praise God. Uh, in the truest sense of the term, not according to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but actually as one who takes life, right? Uh, or a thief, um, uh, or an evil doer, and we could talk about the unpacking that. Uh, but as a meddler, uh, we would have some serious application here. Here's what a meddler is. A meddler is someone who gets involved unnecessarily in the affairs of others. Does that make sense? Um, so basically, it means someone who uh, is. Well, the Bible also re refers to them as busybodies. First um, Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five. You'll need to write this down. First Timothy chapter five, verse thirteen. Paul speaks to the meddler, which is also called busybody bodies as well. Uh, what is what is a busybody? What does that mean? Apparently, it's someone who. A, doesn't work enough, but B, gets involved in things that they shouldn't get involved in. And these same people are, are called to be quiet in the Bible, right? Uh, this is not a female issue, though you may be tempted to think so. As the Bible talks, and it continues to go on in 1 Timothy, let the women do this, it, it, it is not a gender issue. 
meddlers are, are, are people who get involved in the affairs of others when they should not, right? So, um, so, so it says here, do not stand as a murderer, as a thief, as, as an evildoer, or a meddler, okay? First Timothy chapter 5, verse 13. Besides that, they learn, Paul says, they learn to be idlers going from house to house, and not only idle idlers, but uh, also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. It's a wonderful sort of definition and impacting of all things meddler. Okay? Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies um, <clears throat> saying what they should not. Um, so when you and I think busybody, we think sort of busybody of, of work, and that's not the busybody of you here, right? That, that's just not, not, not what it is. Um, so when it says here that Christians shouldn't be meddlers, first of all, it, it, we got to figure out what it is. I think we unpacked part of it. What's curious to me is that meddler is put along, look, look at the charges that it's alongside, right? I mean, is it, is it least important because it's kind of at the, at the bottom, you know? Is it kind of like the covenant of the Ten Commandments? We shouldn't want other people's stuff. It's not really a, a command. Or is it actually real, right? And it's real. Uh, it's, it's listed alongside evildoer, murderer, thief. Wow, that's serious. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, right? Um, he was unexchanged for, for, for a murderer. I mean, these are serious, serious um, crimes. Uh, so when we say that you're a meddler, uh, we mean that, and this is the best way I know how to identify it, just strictly. So you mean like just 10 words, this is what it looks like. He who gives unwanton and ill-timed advice. He who gives unwanton or ill-timed advice, right? Um, I am a hopeless extrovert. God help me, right? And I need to talk less. And part of the bane of the extrovert is that we're just constantly saying things that, that we shouldn't. And what it, what, it, what it ends up for us doing is meddling in things that we shouldn't, right? Um, so uh, our, advice, our advice given to others needs to be metered, wise, and measured. It, it, it just does. And uh, obviously, with regard to the Christian community and the family of faith, this would be true as a direct application. But obviously, um, as um, time believers as well, and I think it's so important for us to, at, at certain times, to stay in our lane. Does that make sense? Now, this is funny because we just got through talking about us not staying in our lane and speaking truth, didn't we? So which is it, Pastor? I mean, make up your mind already, right? Um, and and, and the, the, the best thing that I know how to, how to say here is that a meddler is someone who is selfishly seeking advantage for themselves. Does that make sense? That they seek to pivot and place themselves in a place that makes them feel more comfortable, more secure, and better about themselves all the time, right? Um, a meddler is put alongside adjectives as idlers, but busybodies. That says to me, they're, they're just busy with nothing, right? 
they're, they're, not, they're, doing, they're doing a lot of no good, right? Uh, a, a meddler constantly finds himself in whispers and huddles at work that he certainly does not belong, right? Uh, whispers and huddles at work that certainly he does not belong. This is, this is the essence for me of meddling, right? Um, and that the Christian is called to be a joyful, suffering, truth-telling, peacemaker with a biblical expectation of the victory of God and their particular day, right? Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and not meddle in it. Maybe it also good um, uh, prescription for us. Speaking of suffering. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and that's sort of put on display, it's, I mean, it's important, right? If anyone suffers as a Christian, this word Christian was not in vogue during the time of Paul, okay? Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the, the, the thing is, is that A, we don't want you to be ashamed, for, for I'm not ashamed. First, uh, excuse me, uh, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. We don't have, in, in America, I'll just tell you, we don't have an honor-shame culture in, in, in this country. We just don't. Um, or at least we, there's not much of one. Uh, anyway, the quickest way for you to find yourself the object of our honor, the little bit of our honor-shame culture that we have is to be intolerant. And when you become intolerant, you will find out what little of that sort of uh, Middle Eastern and Oriental sort of honor-shame culture we have uh, among us because this is the highest highest value. You, you breach this and you are, you are, it's open season for you, right? I mean, you're just ready to go. Um, so... Uh, you should not be ashamed of the gospel. You should glorify God in that name. And it says here, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Uh, so the word Christian came about as an insult, right? Uh, it, it was an insult. The word means little Christ. It was never meant to be in a term of endearment. It was always meant to be derogatory, right? Just like in Romania and Eastern Europe, all of Eastern Europe and now, since they've the Eve has opened up all of Western Europe, I'm sure. The, the name Zidane or Gypsy uh, is, is just an insult. It, it doesn't matter if you're a Gypsy or not. To call someone a Gypsy uh, it, it is, is just an insult. It's a, and it's an identifier for who they are in their category, just like it would be for a Christian. But it was nothing good meant for it whatsoever. I mean, it holds nothing good. Right? And so when they said Christian, little Christ, that's what they meant. And of course, if you're an avid reader, have been an avid reader of the book of Acts, or has spent a lot of time studying Luke Acts, then you will know uh, that initially people were known as a part of the movement, a Judaistic breakoff called the Way, right? That eventually moved into Christendom. But when it, it says here, uh, a Christian, that's, that's what you are, that's who you are. Um, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, if you're taking notes. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, uh, the Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a, many, a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called 
Christians. Uh, Acts goes on in chapter 26, verse 28. Acts chapter 26, verse 28, and says, as Paul is standing before Agrippa in chains, he says, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And it seemed to be almost did. Wonderful story, if you've never read it. Um, so uh, you, you and I uh, hold the name Christian. We're not to be ashamed of it. Uh, we are to rejoice in it, uh, certainly, and, and we're to suffer in it and, and to glorify God as we do it. And here's the thing. Increasingly, the name Christian has connotations that you're not wanting to bear. Is that fair? At your workplace, is it or is it not? But it is. Somebody shaking your heads because it's legitimate, right? Um, you you may be called, you know, nicknames like Fundy or Fundamentalist or, or, or whatever. Um, and it probably depends on what kind of Christian you're saying that you are, right? But but in general, I, I, I think that uh, just the name Christian is going to to, to cause you some suffering. Um, and, and to be honest with you, pastorally, I hope that it does. I hope that it does. I hope that things are not just hunky-dory in your place of work with regards to your faith. I, I hope that your faith is stirring the cauldron of depravity <laughs> um, uh, where, where you're at and, and, and that God's doing good work, right? Uh, and the truth's being spoken and told. Um, and that light is being shed in the darkness. Um, so let me, uh, let me encourage you to be do-gooders um, here. Suffer well with the name that you've been given. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't grow weary of it. Uh, Hebrews 12, 3, consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary, faint-hearted. All right, last point. We're going we're gonna to get our last point done in 120 seconds. Two minutes Go. Uh, so, verses 17 through 19, one point, judgment and trust. Judgment and trust. Um, let's read these most confusing verses of our passage today to see what all of this means. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely, the word scarcely there means with difficulty, so let's read it that way, and if the righteous um, is with difficulty saved, and that's referring to their suffering, not the fact that they're barely got in, right? So talking about that, they're not scarcely saved, they're barely saved, they're, they're just saved with a lot of Suffering, which is difficult compared to what I've been through, right? Uh, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner, which is obviously judgment? Verse 19 is the summary of the whole book of 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, the judgment that's in view here uh, for Christians, when it says let judgment begin with the household of God. We're not talking about, as the ESV study Bible says in its notes, and if you don't have one, I would certainly encourage you to get one. It says that, I, I quote, the, the judgment in view is purifying, not punitive. Right? The, the judgment in view is purifying and not punitive, meaning that when persecution comes upon you, it could be looked as judgment, 
the judgment of God, but you could think of it as discipline, and it is certainly not meant to thus punish you, right? It's actually meant to purify you. And over and over in the Bible again, God talks about suffering and trial as something that refines you like a fire, making you as gold. We've heard this this imagery and, and this vernacular throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament, right? Uh, and so that's that's what's in view. Uh, so, and, and if you read it the wrong way, certainly it could put you on a wrong path. And let me just encourage you as you're reading the Bible, the the, the best way to give God the benefit of the doubt uh, uh, upon a, a verse that seems confusing to you, if it is confusing to you and you think that it's meaning something that it just couldn't be saying, it's probably not, right? I mean, you're you're reading it with millennia in between you and the original pen. You certainly are not the first audience yet little context for yourself. And let me encourage you to read with the unity of the Bible. Does that make sense? Like, when you read a verse, think to yourself about that. Okay, what does God say about suffering? What does God say about the judgment of God throughout the Bible? And don't just sort of cherry-pick the Bible in a sort of a controversial manner, but understand that the Bible has one unifying theme. Right? One unifying theme. That, that the unity of the Bible, which is a great book, actually, by Daniel Fuller, um, the unity of the Bible is very, very present, uh, and it's, it's certainly important uh, for, for you to know it. And because what it does is it creates in you the ability to give God the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and, and, that, uh, and that if you begin to doubt your understanding when you don't understand something at first, it's probably because you don't have first century eyes. And you don't, um, nor, nor do I. Um, so that's what it means when it says for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It just means that these trials do something to us. They feel, I mean, certainly if you were living then, you would feel like it was uh, judgment. And it says there, um, you know, if it begins with us, what are going to happen to people who actually don't obey the gospel? This is a, uh, a, a thought from, actually it's a quote from the Septuagint which is the Greek form of the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter, sorry, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. If the righteous is repaid on earth, it says in Proverbs, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Again, Proverbs 11, 31. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Um, so yeah, we can look at places in Malachi that would talk to us about the refiner's fire, uh, enduring to the day, et cetera, et cetera. We won't, we won't do that. Um, Peter is here um, in, in this area. Uh, he, what he says here in verse 19, um, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Well, he's actually paraphrasing a Jewish prayer that he would have certainly prayed as a boy. Uh, listen to the original prayer. Um, it says, I can find it. There it is. Uh, our lives are committed to your hand and our souls to your care. It's an old Hebrew prayer. Uh, our lives are committed to your hand and our souls to your care. And you can sort of hear that as he's uh, writing in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing um, this verse reminds me a lot of Q1 of the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong body and soul in life and death to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a catechism that entrusts one's whole being to God, doesn't it? 
Um, yeah, certainly, certainly does. And of course, what's the sort of concluding thought here uh, it, it, it is that you should be known as a do-gooder. You know, uh, a, a, a do-gooder, you, you should do good. Uh, it, it's funny that I'm, I'm teaching on the goodness of God because this week, uh, for two straight days, I lectured about the omnibenevolence of God uh, as a part of, uh, of, of my classes. And of course, the omnibenevolence of God says that God is all good, that everything that he does is good and he can't not do good, that God uh, is, is, is sovereign over evil uh, without doing it, um, and that he is not tainted by said evil or sin, right? Teaching a bunch of 14-year-olds, um, uh, this is, is fun. Um, but anyway, um, as far as goodness goes, you're called to do good. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 uh, do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith Hebrews, uh, sorry uh, Galatians 6 10 um, Romans 12 21 do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good you, you're, we are to be people who look for good to do to the degree that uh, James, brother of Jesus, in chapter 4, speaking of doing good in the midst of suffering, uh, chapter 4, verse 17 says, to him who knows to do good and does it not, finish the verse with me, to him it is sin. It's sin. To him who knows to do good and does it not, James chapter 4, verse 17, to him it's sin. And that, that, that melees me every time I read it. It just does. And, and, and the thing that always comes to mind when I read that verse is, is, is the story of the Good Samaritan. Why is the Good Samaritan called the Good Samaritan? Because, of, because there were bad ones before him, right? There were the guys who came up, saw a guy lying in a ditch, uh, and, and wouldn't do anything about it. To him who knows to do good, of course they were more interested in their own ritualistic purification than they were in getting, in, getting themselves dirty, helping the needy, right? And the Bible and the Levitical law says that they're to help and love the sojourner, by the way. They will just happen to be there. So they're breaking the Levitical law by not getting in the ditch and helping this guy. But I really am front and center. Not only am I the king of self-pity, which makes me, you know, a prime target for the application here of not seeing myself in a victim's life, uh, but also to conversely, on the other side of that, do good. Be a reflector of God's good. The Bible in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, says that you are, it says this, my little children, it says, um, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're to imitate God. There's a lot of things that we could do to imitate God. But one of them is the goodness of God, isn't it? That, that we could take this lesson of omnibenevolence, like kind of what I was teaching this week, and pull that over here and say, hey, if we're to do good, while we suffer, uh, let us let us let us understand what good there is to be done. The Christian should be doing good. I should do good to and by my wife, right, and, and, and to my children, to my coworkers. Here's an application: to my eighth graders. Jesus, take the wheel, right? Mm -hmm. That's serious, serious application for all of us. But we can sit down and talk about do-gooding in the, the particular contexts of, 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 of where we were 
and where we are this week, and I think it would be uh, very beneficial to all of us. So, hey, listen, thank you for uh, your, your kind attention. I appreciate it. I, I pray, uh, really, that the Lord would use this in, in your heart and in your life um, to encourage you um, to, to set your feet upon a rock, right? If some of you are slipping, um, to be the, the material that you need to preach to your heart for today and, and Monday, right as Monday comes around. Um, that's, that, that's my prayer, guys, that God would um, help you to think biblically um, and restore you and that you would understand the blessings that you have to enjoy of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, the joy that you can be taking. Um, yeah, there's lots and lots and lots of applications. As I said, we could probably have broken up 12 to 19 in several different sermons, but uh, did not. So, all right, we're going to take the Lord's table. Um, could I ask John and Emily to serve us? That would be lovely. Uh, okay, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take the Lord's table. Right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. God, we know that your commands are good and that they mean good for us and, and bring you glory. So God, we pray that we would not be meddlers, that we would suffer well, that we would do good, that we would have a biblical expectation for our week. Um, that we could, in fact, um, live with eyes wide open uh, and, and that God, in, in doing good and in being radically different in, in a hostile world, that you would give us uh, the opportunity to speak your great name and to make much of you, uh, not only in our actions, but our words. So God, help us today uh, and this week honor you in all that we say and do. Help us to love you well. Um, I'm going to pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring back to mind uh, all the things that we need when our heart begins to wonder uh, and, and move wayward and sideways, um, that you would use your spirit living inside of us, our great blessing, uh, to give us all that we need for life and godliness this week. I pray that you would also use the gathered people of God to be what we should be to one another, and that is doing good to one another and helping one another in Christian life. So help us, God, to help one another and to make much of you. Thank you for this glorious table, the commandment to take it, the gift and the grace that it is, the presence that the elements bring as a loud message of the good news and the bad news that we enjoy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com.